Our scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 49 verses 1 to 13. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there is one that is uh, in some of the chair racks. It's the blue Bible and you can find Isaiah 49 on page 774. If you have the opportunity to look at it, it may be helpful. We're going to walk through it section by section during the teaching time. But just for brief context, this is the second of what are commonly referred to in the latter part of the book of Isaiah as the servant songs. Four identifiable songs toward the end of Isaiah that talk about the coming of a servant, one who will be blessed by God for the benefit of God's people to do God's work, specifically a work of rescue and a work of salvation. This work of rescue and salvation would have been particularly comforting to the people that Isaiah was speaking to, a future people who would be in exile and wondering if God had abandoned them. And Isaiah was bringing them comfort and saying, no, your God has not abandoned you, and he will be with you even in the midst of this trial. Now, that's the historical context that he was speaking of, but even more, Isaiah was looking forward to the struggles of God's people throughout the centuries and throughout the ages and saying, God has not abandoned you. And so he was equally speaking to us and saying, in the midst of our world of brokenness and struggle, we too need a rescuer, we too need a servant. And he's coming, Isaiah said. And in these four specific servant songs, he speaks of the characteristics of this servant, this being the second of them. So let me ask you to stand if you're able as I read this text. It's Isaiah chapter 49, starting at verse 1 and going all the way to verse 13. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says... It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves, because of the Lord who is faithful the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the way on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, those from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion 
on his afflicted. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Two of my children have recently been participating in basketball tournaments with the games being played at the Fort Athletic Club in Oceanport. It's a gym and athletic facility that was constructed just a a little while ago on the property of the old Fort Monmouth Army Base. Now, the athletic club is relatively new and it's shiny, but to get to it, you have to drive through the grounds uh, of the old installation and all these overgrown, crumbling buildings. Row after row of old barracks and buildings and parking lots. If you've been up there, you've seen it and you know now rotting and fenced in, waiting to be torn down or something done with them. And as you drive through, one of my daughters said, it's kind of creepy, Dad. And it is. I know what she means. But I've always been fascinated by things like that, by places like that, in a sad kind of way. Because you look, you drive through, you look at buildings like that, or you look at facilities like that, and you kind of half close your eyes and you imagine what it once was, what it must have been like in its glory, the activity and the importance and the thousands of people rushing around with purpose, the the former glory, a glory now abandoned and faded and yes, even maybe a little bit creepy. The world which Isaiah was prophesying in the later chapters of Isaiah was like this in more ways than one. Isaiah was speaking to a future people of God who were displaced and they were in exile in a foreign land. They were in Babylon. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed. The walls of the city had been torn down. The great temple of Solomon was in ruins. And understandably, the faith of God's people was probably, for almost all of them, significantly shaken. Earlier this year, you may have remembered if you were here and with us, that we studied the reign of King Solomon about 400 years or so between, before the fall of Jerusalem. And during the reign of King Solomon, the temple was shiny. The temple was new. Solomon prayed this rich theological prayer of worship to the, to the Lord. And, and when the nation of Israel was rich and its borders were secure and its people were faithful and its rulers were wise, you would look at it and you would say, this is God's glory on display. But that now, the time that Isaiah is writing about, that was former glory. Right? That's the people to whom Isaiah was writing. Now it's also possible though to get yourself out of the historical context and think of your own life and that, may feeling, that feeling may resonate with you as well. It's not, it's not the way everyone might feel right now but it is quite common at Christmas for many people to look back at the past and fix fix themselves on some period in the past when life was shinier for them, when it was happier, maybe when it was filled with a greater amount of promise than you feel right now, and maybe that's you. Certainly to one degree or another, we all can look at the world and our lives in it and see some of the decay and the crumble and the pain and the suffering, and it should make us wonder, was this the original design? Was this the original intent? Or was there a former glory that was lost? The Bible's answer is that there is. There is a former glory. A glory, like looking at Fort Monmouth, that can still be seen if you squint and you look kind of just right at it, but it's hard to see right now. Which is why the servant to come and restore that glory is so needed. Because we need someone to restore that glory. 
So what I want to do this morning is I want to walk you through this second of these four servant songs. And I want you to understand the flow of this passage. And, and there's a high-level outline for you in the, in the bulletin of kind of how it flows. The first six verses we call the, well, I'm calling the, the glory of the, of the servant. Kind of reintroduces from the perspective of the servant, even using the servant's own words, who the servant is and what his mission is. And then in verses 7 to 13, you see the world's response to that servant. And so I want to walk through this outline. I want you to see the flow of what Isaiah is doing here. I don't want us to be intimidated by the poetry. As glorious as it it sounds, sometimes we can say, wow, that was really cool sounding. And you go back and say, but I'm not sure what it was saying. So that's what I want to do. And after we do that, we'll try to apply it a little bit for what it might mean to us today. So let's walk through this passage. First, the servant's glory. That's verses 1 to 6. And what's interesting here is it's actually, in this case now, the servant talking. Right? In the servant song we looked at last week in Isaiah 42, it was, it was Jehovah talking about the servant. Right? So in our understanding of the Apostles' Creed, it was God the Father speaking of God the Son, the servant. The Father speaking about the Son. Here we have the words of the servant in verses 1 to 6. And he says in verse 1, listen to me. It's like he's calling the audience to attention right? because he's about to say something. And the audience he's calling is the widest of all possible audiences. It's not just the people of Israel he's summoning to attention. It's the coastlands. It's it's the people from afar. Which tells you something about this servant from the very outset. That he's not just the servant of a local tribe or one Middle Eastern kingdom. He's making a global claim. Which means that he's asking for the attention of those people on the other side of the world who have never heard of them. From our perspective, and think about this, he's asking for the attention, not just of the people in this room, he's asking for the attention of your neighbor, of your classmate, of your co-worker, regardless of their ethnic background, their religious understanding, their national origin, or their moral past. He is making a call to all. And that global claim means as well that he's making a call to every part of your life. It is a global claim, not just geographically, but also in our own lives, not just to a couple hours on Sunday morning, not just a claim on 20 minutes of your night before you go to bed, but all of you. And the first thing he explains is that he isn't calling for the attention of all people everywhere on his own. He is coming with the authority of the Lord. He's called, that's what it says, uh, he, he's called. That's what it, we see in verses 1 to 3. He says, the Lord called me. The Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, the God of everything, the God of all time, the God who has always existed and always will exist. That's who is calling him. And he called him, he says, from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. Now here we start getting into some of the Christmassy kind of themes, right? The conception, the birth of of, of the Messiah, of the Savior. Now, I'll make the connection a little bit more explicitly later, but it's hard not to think of when you read a, a, a verse like this, a prophecy like this, it's hard not to think of the conversation that the angel would have centuries later with that young woman named Mary. That unmarried woman to whom the angel said, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great, and be called the Son of the Most High. The servant is saying, I have been called for my mission from the very beginning. And his mission, at at least as it's laid out in verse 2, 
is primarily a ministry of words. It's a ministry of proclamation. Unlike the mighty earthly empires, this servant is going to speak his power, right? The words from his mouth are like a sharp sword. Now, this again is language that the Jewish people would have understood as talking about a coming Messiah. And later Christians would clearly associate with a risen and a reigning Jesus. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation, in his vision of Jesus in glory, says that from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. It also says, interestingly enough, that the servant is not, he's not just a, he's not just a sword, right? A sword's not just coming. He's also an arrow, Right? So his words don't just confront those who are near, which is what a sword would do, right? Those that are kind of close to you. But an arrow, those who are far, again, he is proclaiming to everyone. So that gives you a quick sense of how the servant describes his calling. It's, a, it's to, to everyone everywhere. It's designed and it's planned in advance. And it is designed to confront all people everywhere with a powerful message that brings us under his authority. Now, then in verse 4, we get the hint that this servant's calling, that his mission will involve some degree of frustration, that it's not going to be easy, that he's going to face rejection. The servant will feel as if his labor is in vain, he says, which is a very helpful counterpoint to to the strength and the power of the servant. It tells us something about how this servant is going to enter into the world, not just in glory and power, but also in in weakness and humility. The servant experiences human frustration. Jesus felt that. He once said to a man who had no faith in him, oh, faithless and twisted generation, right? It's as if this man came to him with no faith and he was speaking to him, but it's as if he turned around and just (laughs) said to everyone, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? The frustration is real and it's valid. But what's interesting is, and and we see this in verse 4, it's not the same as cynicism. The servant isn't hopeless about the effectiveness of his mission. He's just honest about the struggle of it. Because then at the end of verse 4, he'll say, Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense is with my God. In other words, the servant's hope isn't in any response of the people. That's not where he's placing his hope. Because many would respond by rejecting him. But his hope is on his relationship with his father. And there's a glory in this as well. Remember, we're under the larger heading of the the servant's glory, right? The ability to honestly confront opposition, to recognize that, that it can be a struggle, to recognize that this message that the servant brings can and oftentimes will be rejected But that doesn't lead us to unloving cynicism. It leads us to a greater faith in God's glory. Now, ultimately, in verses 5 and 6, the servant knows that he'll be vindicated, that he'll be exalted, that his people, Israel, will be gathered to him. He will be honored in the the eyes of the Lord, also verse 5. And the rescue and the hope that he offers will go on to be recognized by all the nations. That's what it says in verse 6. All right, so that's the first section of this song then, right, where we see the servant talking about and displaying his glory. Now, the next section shows us the response to the servant's words, right? Let's start at verse 7. Look what we see. First thing we see in verse 7 is that the kings bow. Now, that's the heading that I gave to it. Now, that's what I put in the outline because bowing is how we typically show respect and submission to someone. We bow to them. 
But kids, if you have your Bibles open, I want you to look and see at verse 7. Show your parents that the kings are not actually bowing, are they? What are the kings doing? They're rising. They're standing up which really is saying the same thing as we would understand about bowing. But see, the thing is, is we don't have a lot of kings and queens here in, a, in America to help us understand this. I was listening to a preacher um, who was from Scotland, and he told about, time, one of the, about this time when he, he went and had the opportunity to meet uh, the Queen of Great Britain. And he says that he was given the very, very clear instructions about how he was en- to enter the room. They said, the queen, as you enter, will remain seated, and you will remain standing. You never will sit unless the queen specifically invites you to sit. That's how it was to work, right? The servant or the subject will stand in the presence of the greater authority. Now, flip it around. Think about it like this. Same thing with the queen. If you're sitting in a room and you're waiting for the queen... And all of a sudden the door opens and in walks the queen. What do you do? You rise and you do it. Now, that's what's happening here. The sovereign servant has entered into the world and everyone rises. Even the people who we think are really important. Even the kings. That's the first response. The response of the kings. The kings bow or more accurately the kings rise. Now, second response, and you see this spread throughout verses 8 to 12, the nations are gathered, right? So the authorities rise, or they recognize the authority of this servant when he comes. That's how they respond. The nations are gathered. They come. That's part of what, this, what the servant was saying in verse 6 was part of his calling. Now the Lord is speaking, verse 8, thus says the Lord, and that's exactly what's going to happen. Now it's going to start with Israel. Israel's going to be first, and yet, and yes, the people will ultimately return to their homeland, right? Isaiah doesn't have that completely absent from his view. King Cyrus of Persia is going to come. He's going to defeat Babylon. He's the one who's going to ultimately allow the people to return to Jerusalem and the walls will be rebuilt and all that will happen. But the promise to Israel is actually bigger. It's broader than just the physical land. It will be to Israel that the servant will be be given, and he's going to call them out of darkness, and he's going to feed their spiritual hunger, not just their physical hunger, and he's going to establish a kingdom that is far greater than the kingdom of Cyrus of Persia, a kingdom to which roads and highways will bring people from the north and from the west. And then what happens? As this gathering happens, and as all the authorities of the world recognize who this servant is, verse 13, you see the response of the creation. It's just this explosion of praise. The whole creation just erupts in in joy. Sing for joy, O heavens. Exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. That's what we have. That's this servant song. This servant who comes in all power and authority. Who comes and through frustration will bring the nations to him. And the authorities will recognize this and the people will be gathered and the whole creation ultimately will celebrate. But we can't just stop there. Because as much as I've tried to outline it and summarize it, much of it maybe still is in a little bit of a blur. So let's do this. Go back to verse 3. The Lord is quoted, talking to the servant, and he says, you are my servant in whom I will be glorified. But what name does he give to the servant when he says that? 
What's the name? My servant Israel. Now, this has confused some people because in other places of the Old Testament, that phrase, my servant Israel, is referring to the people Israel. The people are God's servant. My people Israel. God has used that phrase in other parts of the, of the Hebrew Scripture, and they, and they serve Him. It's a very simple understanding of that, of that phrase, and it's often correct. But here it seems, when the Lord says, my servant Israel, He's quoted as saying, my servant Israel, as if God is saying that this is not people Israel, this is Messiah Israel. This is Messiah's servant. Is it something different? Well, not not completely different, but something better. This is how, this this is now servant Israel who has come to be what people Israel has failed to be. So that's the point. And that's the connection in the language. It's why it's using that similar phrase. With the Lord speaking about my servant Israel, he's intentionally trying to bring back a reminder of, in the people's minds, my people Israel, wait, that was us. That's us, your servant. And you're saying now this Messiah is going to be servant Israel? That's exactly right. See, this is the point. The people Israel had failed to live up to the promise. At times in its history, there was this bustle of activity. There was this little glimpse of glory, right? For example, when Moses brought the people out of slavery in Egypt and they said to Moses, yeah, 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 we'll be God's people. We'll follow his law. We'll follow him. We'll keep that law. And then they failed and they complained and they broke the law and they worshiped false gods and the weeds started growing around Fort Monmouth, right? Right, or they promised the prophet Samuel, Yeah, give us a king. Give us a king. We'll be fine. It'll make us a great nation and we'll be powerful like other nations and all the other nations will be impressed. And for a short time, that was true. And then they failed. And they broke from God's commandments. And civil war split the nation. And the weeds started growing all over Fort Monmouth. The temple would be rebuilt. Uh, uh, Eventually, the people... Uh, in Isaiah, that Isaiah was speaking to, right? The, the temple would be rebuilt, but the, but the people would still fail God. The people of Israel would still be in the dark for hundreds and hundreds of years after the prophet spoke. And all they would be able to look at in those years of silence between the prophets and the coming of Jesus, all they would be able to look at would be the weeds growing and the buildings crumbling as they thought about the glory that once was until servant Israel arrived in a stable to be the Israel that people Israel could never have been. To stand in the place of the people and make the broken beautiful. Let me change the image for a second from from the mental image of of Fort Monmouth to something else. Before Stacey and I were married, we were involved in a a church plant that met on Sunday nights in a, in a rented hall. We had Bible teaching, we had discussion time, it ended with food, but we always began with with music, and, and one week during this music time, this girl from the group was going to play a song on the keyboard for us. She was super sweet, and letting her play was, was very well-intentioned, but it quickly became clear that it was not going well, right? She wasn't ready. Now, don't push the metaphor too far. The girl wasn't in rebellion. She wasn't sinning or anything like that, but it was a picture of someone in a position of trying to fill a role that she couldn't fill, she couldn't live up to the standard. And as she struggled, the, the, the pain on her face was, was evident. And the excitement and the expectation that everyone had about her playing that day was beginning to fade quickly 
until her father, who was a master musician and brilliant on the piano, rose quietly from his seat, walked slowly behind his daughter, and as she struggled to find the notes, he reached out gently, one arm on one side, side, who rose to serve his struggling child, who could not meet the standard, made beauty out of the failure. And the smile came back to the girl's face. That's what the coming of the servant master does. Beauty out of failure and restoration out of ruins and joy back into the world. In 2 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and he's telling them about Jesus and he quotes Isaiah 49 verse 8, what we just read. He quotes the servant song. He quotes the Lord talking to his servant. In a favorable time I listened to you and in the day of salvation I have helped you. And then the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, he connects the dots. After he quotes that verse, he says, Behold, now is the favorable time. And now is the day of salvation. Folks, we do not live in Isaiah's time. The servant Israel has arrived. His name is Jesus. He will be the perfection that we cannot be. He'll live up to the promise we could not keep. So the questions then come to our own lives. Will we rise in the presence of this servant and recognize him as our Lord? Will we respond to his call and come and be gathered? He's made a way to do it. He's given you the access that you need to come. I'm not sure that Isaiah would have made this connection exactly. I'm not even sure that we can say that God intended this in having Isaiah record these words. But in light of what the servant ended up doing for us, I can't help but see it. In Isaiah 49, verse 11, it says, I will make all my mountains a road. The mountains turned into a highway on which the people can come to him. And I can't help but think of the hill outside of the city of Jerusalem was called Calvary. Not a rocky mountain, not a Swiss Alp, but a humble hill. It's where the servant Jesus would die the death of a criminal. But it was there that God made a road. He made a highway so that in his perfect sacrifice, we could come to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the glory that you display in who you are and what you have done, for the absolute beauty of your servant. Thank you, Lord, for the promise of his coming, for the realization of his coming that we can now turn back to and see, and the hope that it provides us as we await his eventual and promised return. So, Lord, I pray that you would apply this message perfectly to each of our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.